our many thoughts on the Friends reunion, the teenagers who won against the Environment Minister, and is heterosexual male culture actually homoerotic? We're Maggie and Jasmine, and this is Culture Club, our weekly chat about pop culture, current affairs, the internet, and our lives. We acknowledge that the Wurundjeri and Bunurong people are the traditional custodians of the land upon which we live, work, and create this podcast. This week marks National Reconciliation Week, a week that encourages all Australians to learn about our shared histories, cultures, and achievements, and to explore how each of us can contribute to achieving reconciliation in Australia. This year's theme is More Than a Word. Reconciliation takes action. It urges people to take braver and more impactful action. Listening to First Nations voices this week and every other week is crucial. As Gorangarang woman Rachel Sara says, the flaw in this thinking is that there has never been a relationship with First Nations people. She continues, the way forward is not about mending relationships. The way forward is about breaking down the structures and systems that still exist to oppress us and establishing a relationship with us. With that in mind, we would like to pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Let's not beat around the bush. So we're recording in lockdown. Melbourne's like, what number now? Four. But it feels like a million. Yeah, exactly. So yes, we've been homebound this week. How are you feeling, Jazz? I feel okay doing it for this week, but as you know, it's my birthday on Friday and we're meant to be going away. So I'm praying that it ends then, but it's also like trying to not get your hopes up. It's such a fine balance that like we've dealt with over the past 18 months of like expect, not expecting the worst, but like knowing that your plans could get cancelled. It's like this weird limbo to be in. Yes. Yes. Mm. Oh, I feel like the word liminal kind of encapsulates it for me. So being, yes, stuck in a state um, of like the unknown and then kind of falling into um, moments of time where it feels unaffected by the virus and that you're enjoying life, but then that you know at any second that could be taken away from you just as it has um, this week. So what a strange feeling to, you know, feel. Um, mm. I'm like laughing about it now just because like that's how I'm kind of coping and you know kind of like you I'm like okay if it is the seven days that's fine like I've been baking I've been reading more blah 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 watch Les Miserables the mm. the musical for the first time bloody loved it um I've seen like the old movie and I saw the play so it was really fun to watch the musical and like it's like an hour, it's like two hours something, mm. like two hours 40 or something like that. So good a time as any. Yeah, that's how I've been dealing with it as well, like working when I have to and then like watching t- lots of TV or movies because it's mm. just like such an escape and like really ha- happy things as well. So last night I watched RuPaul's Drag Race, obviously, uh, Down Under. And also mm. 17 again, which was like my favorite movie growing, one of my favorite movies growing up. And it's just such a comfort movie for me. And so that was really, really nice to like actually laugh at it as if I was watching it for the first time and oh. just mm. kind of remembering being 13 and having no <laughs> stress. <laughs> oh, I love that movie. Um, there's a character called Maggie. So when Zach Efron says Maggie's name, I'm like, oh. <laughs> Clinging on to every word, like me when I was, um, you know, 13 as well or whatever. Oh, such good mems. Except it's his daughter, Maggie. <laughs> oh, that's his. Oh, is that weird? Oh, no. but then she likes him. I'm remembering it now. Gotcha. Yeah. So incestuous. So funny. <laughs> so everyone's dealing with it in different ways. Mine is uh, watching Zac Efron, but we are thinking of everyone in Victoria and everyone who's being affected by this because there's no other way to put it than it's just shit. Yes, and I completely second that. Our DMs are always open if anyone wants to chat as well. Speaking of TV shows, the cast of American sitcom Friends reunited this week for the first time since the famous show ended in 17 years. 
Yeah, so streaming on HBO Max and Binge, this movie-length reunion was a nostalgia-filled trip down memory lane. It was hosted by James Corden, but we see the cast head back to the famous set, get behind-the-scenes stories, and even see some old co-stars. Running from September 1994 to May 2004, the TV show defined a generation and has captured new generations since. And I have found some stats for everyone today. So before it was taken off TV, Friends was one of the most watched shows on streaming platform Netflix, with viewers spending 54.3 million hours watching the show just in 2018. Now, 54.3 million hours is equivalent to 62,000 years in one year. And I'm sure that that number would have been so much higher last year in 2020. Mm, Yeah, exactly. The series finale was watched by 52 million Americans, making it the most watched finale of the 2000s. And that was before streaming, obviously, in um, 2004. (laughs) So people were watching it live. That's like double all of Australia watching the same finale. Mm. It's pretty wild. So I want to know, did you ever watch Friends and does it mean anything to you? It totally does. I would actually bet money on the fact that most of our audience actually at least knows what Friends is and has watched some of an episode. I think it is so wide ranging, the the hold it has on our generation, the generation before, like literally everybody I know. Um, so yes, I used to watch Friends quite a bit when I was younger. It would be on TV, I think channel 11 at 6, 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. Um, and we used to watch it as a family, kind of random episodes here and there, but it was always a show that was comforting and um, just something lighthearted that you could throw on and yes we'll get into it later there are a lot of problematic things associated with it but for me at least it is kind of related to a lot of just like cozy and fond memories what about you? Yeah I feel the same way obviously I didn't watch it like when it was live but you know, you watch the reruns on TV. And then I remember going to a friend's house and they had all the box sets and it was just like always on in the background. And I love going to the house because we could just pick and choose from all the different seasons. But I'm the same. If I'm ever like, oh, I don't know what to watch. Can't be bothered. I just want something to like, you know, numb my brain. I'll usually choose friends because it's just so comforting. You know, the character's Nothing too, like, anxiety-inducing is going to happen either, which is a big, mm. like, I love that. <laughs> so, yeah, I was pretty excited about the reunion. It feels like it came around really quickly, but I was excited to see what it was all about. Well, it's funny because, like, I was a take-it-or-leave-it kind of gal. Like, when you were saying, oh, why don't we talk about it this week? I was like, oh, yeah, like, I'll give that a watch. Um, Even though I love the show, I was like, oh, I like the way it ended it had a nice, neat bow tie on it. I'm kind of, you know, I'm not a big fan of all these old shows being um, rebooted or brought up again when they had their time. And I feel like he almost ruins it, a.k.a. Harry Potter, um, the play. Like, it's not good. Did not enjoy it. <laughs> um, which I think kind of made the series less good. I get where you're coming from with that. And they mentioned in the reunion that, they don't want to do like a movie or another TV show because they love the way it was just neatly tied up and that they'd have to unravel all of those stories to make another version of the show. But I think that's also what makes it so good is that it's such like a snapshot of the time that I think it would be ruined if they like you saw them all again, like middle-aged parents oh, dealing yeah. with the school run. It just doesn't have the same magic, does it? Yeah, if you had like social media in it, that'd be like no one needs to see that. Um, we don't need to see one of them get into like Bitcoin or whatever. <laughs> Who would it be that Chandler? Chandler or obviously. Ross? Oh yeah, oh Ross <laughs> is a Bitcoin guy, isn't he? Yeah, he would be talking would be about him like... all the time. <laughs> so I want to also go back to some of the issues that people have had with the show, especially recently, a lot of people have started to have issues with it when watching the show through a more modern lens. As younger generations explore the series, issues of fat phobia, homophobia, transphobic jokes, and the obvious lack of people of colour being cast have all been really valid criticisms. Yeah, it's 
so it's almost like embarrassingly obvious when we rewatch it now. I don't know if you've had the same experience because again, when I was watching it younger, I was just so naive to it all, laughing along. And now watching it back when they do have these really like overt, um, like problematic jokes, I'm like, oh, I can't believe I was so fine with it when I was younger. But of course, you know, this was me when I was quite young, so I'm not chastising my younger self um but like a good example of this is like the fat monica character that they explore when monica is um younger and it's just like a terrible caricature of a fat person and is very poor comedic relief um and obviously it's just fat phobic yeah i think we have actually spoken about this before in the episode where we're talking about jonah hill's body positivity and how the fat person is always the comedic relief in like Um, mainstream television so there's definitely issues with that I was reading up today and in terms of the lack of people of color um, in the Rolling Stones cover story that was published during the first season of the show David Schwimmer spoke on behalf of the show and said listen the fact is that we could be more diverse but it doesn't necessarily bother me can't do everything to please everybody and I know that in casting they did look at all sorts of different people this just happens to be the group they ended up with oh that did not age well (laughs) no and that was like 94 95 which I don't know like I'm not that old (laughs) that was like you know the times that I was born so it feels like not that long ago but so much has changed as well Mm. yeah I wouldn't be able to comment on like what the times were back then Mm. and what societal values were held because I just frankly was not born so I don't know (laughs) um but I like I think having an all-white cast was such an obvious choice because the reason why people love and relate to the cast of friends so much you know you get those conversations like oh who are you in the group like I'm the Monica of the group um is because I think yeah white people are so palatable and you can project yourself onto them because they are like known as the every man or just the normal type of person mm. so they're re- more relatable that's what's commonly believed but yeah obviously that's that's not an excuse I think that's just something that's that I thought of yeah. Yeah. I think considering Friends was on the air for like 10 years and the most popular comedy in the world for a while, they could have made real change by presenting a diverse cast. The first black character with an actual character arc and a full name didn't come along until season nine, which like 2003, mm. when Aisha Taylor was Charlie Wheeler, a paleontology professor. And even then, she's very much like a side character. Interestingly enough, a few weeks ago, I was writing a piece for Fashion Journal called Niche Shows Worth Watching for the 90s Fashion Alone. And it was about how we can take trends from the 90s and put them into today. And I came across the show Living Single. Have you heard of it? I didn't, but I saw this piece as well. So that's how I came across this show. Um, Do you want to tell us about it? Thanks for reading my work. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so it was first aired in 1993. And the show follows six friends, all in the early 20s, living in Brooklyn. The difference between Living Single and Friends is that Living Single features six black people, most notably Queen Latifah, who developed the show. I saw a YouTube clip of Queen Latifah on the James Corden show, funnily enough, and James Corden is saying, like, now this looks very similar to Friends, like, what happened here kind of thing, and Queen Latifah is very gracious and says, like, oh, yeah, we are kind of in the market at the same time, but they've done so well and she was being very very like humble about it when in reality there are rumors that um friends was directly inspired by living single and people have said that living single was less promoted and marketed making it a great example of whitewashing in the media at the time and how we tend to relegate black stories to the sidelines that's so interesting and i do want to watch living single now um But anyway, this does bring us back to the Friends reunion. What did you think about it? I thought it was really sweet. I found myself actually smiling like while watching it and tearing up in certain parts. And it was just so heartwarming. And especially after the year everyone's had, and especially Americans have had, I think it's 
brought like genuine joy to people. I found the format very well done as well. It wasn't just like them sitting on the couch with James Corden for an hour and a half. It like spliced with different things and interviews and talking heads. I love seeing Reese Witherspoon and Mm -hmm. David Beckham pop up. And Malala was so Mm -hmm. cute. It was so nice to see her like in a relaxed setting, not like speaking at the UN or something. It's so funny because I was like, wait, they got Malala on. She was the person I was most surprised at seeing. Um, I think you're so right. We see her in all these serious settings and seeing her as just like a young woman chilling with her best friend talking about this TV show. It was a really nice moment that you realize activists are also people too. And that sounds obvious, but it was nice to see her more humanized. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Um, what did you think about the choice to have James Corden host? Why was he there? I feel like, I'm so sorry. I feel like we've talked about James Corden has been in the media recently, um, with rumors that he's like not a very nice guy and things like that. Um, and I really? just feel like I haven't seen that. Oh, really? There was, it's a lot no. on like Dumois and stuff like that. So yeah, just kind of being like a rude person or something. Nothing major, just general like celebrity like tantrums I guess oh interesting I find it funny that Americans really love him so much this is going on a tangent I don't mind him there's been a lot on Twitter there's a lot of like James Corden hate and like putting asterisks in his name as a joke like it's a slur and I don't mind him like I watched him on Gavin and Stacey and like have seen his career kind of go up. And I think he's a very accessible interviewer and, like, celebrities really like talking to him. He usually gets the best stuff. So I don't really understand the James Corden hate train, but I did find it funny they chose him for this specifically. Like, but then again, who else would they choose? I don't know. I just feel like an interviewer who has, like, a connection to friends would have made more Mm. sense or someone who was maybe in the industry when they were – you know, filming and when it was live, I feel like that would have added more to it. Um, I don't know. I don't have anything that against him, but yeah. Maybe someone like David Letterman or like a bit more of a serious journalist would have been good. Mm. But then again, you don't want to make it too like heavy. I think True. James Corden had a good balance of like, like a little bit, bit more serious, but then also keeping it really light and fun, which is what I think everyone wanted from it. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's the thing. So um, I loved watching it, enjoyed it so much so that um, I was watching it with my sister Katie and afterwards we're like, yeah, let's just watch an old episode just for the memories. And that was nice. But there were some parts where I was like, oh, this feels a little bit awkward. Did you feel any of that or was that just me? I didn't. I thought it was (sighs) sweet, the whole thing. What did you think was awkward? (laughs) See, I don't know if I'm overanalyzing it. I just think the fact that we know this is the first time they've been together for like 17 years, I was kind of looking at like trying to kind of scrutinize or like look (laughs) between the layers because obviously these are celebrities and actors. They know how to put on a good front. I just think there are a few times where it did feel a little bit awkward to me. I wonder if anyone else felt the same because now I feel self-conscious. Um, but for instance, um, one of the first questions were like, okay, like James Corden was like, how often do you guys all keep in touch? And they're like, oh, we're so tight. Like we don't talk every day, but you know, if you call or text one of the others, they'll always pick up. That's just who we are. But as one of the cast members was saying that his eyebrows were quite like furrowed and he kind of looked like what was being said was a little bit sketchy. And then James Corden followed it up with a question to like Matthew Perry and deadpan. He was just like, I never get cold. And it, it didn't feel like a joke either. And then they just like kept it moving and it was lighthearted. But I was like, oh, I feel like there might have been some truth mm. to that. Don't know. <laughs> Interesting. Well, Matthew Perry has struggled, I think, a lot since the show ended. Mm. I think the cast member to struggle with addiction issues the most, which actually came up in the news this week. Um, I When I was online, there was so much I don't say ageism because ageism is discrimination and Mm -hmm. they're very wealthy white celebrities, but like a lot of negative talk about their age. Um, Some comments I saw were, what happened to their faces? And they all look strange though, except Phoebe. These wax museum figures just keep getting worse. And one that was really sad was, I drink too much, so I'm scared I'm going to look as bad as Matthew Perry in 20 years. 
we often say that we're moving past body shaming and we're like so much more positive these days, but I feel like people still think that celebrities have a free pass. What happened to Matthew Perry actually became a trending Google term. I don't know about you. I mean, they'll pay $2 million to do it. So I take a little bit of, um, you know, hate towards my wrinkles if it meant I got, got $2 million. But I did find that a bit sad that like people were being quite cruel about their faces. And it's like, mm. it's been 17 years. People age in 17 years, you know? But exactly. And I think it's just people just jump at the opportunity to try compare them to what they look like 20, 30 years ago. Um, not allowing people to just age or, you know, have surgery if they choose to. I feel like there's this weird balance where, um, celebrities can't really do anything right you know they they get surgery they're kind of condemned for it or they don't and they're also ridiculed for it so it's so frustrating and that the fact that a lot of these conversations about the reunion were just about what they look like is kind of like oh that's not the point and that was quite Mm. frustrating to see totally yeah it was kind of like a damned if you do damned if you don't thing because people were targeting them for like botox and fillers but then also complaining about aging So it's like, what do you want from people? Mm. I saw a lot of that ageism stuff coming from TikTok. I found that a lot of young people um, and teenagers on TikTok are like terrified of aging. And I don't know if that's just a teenage thing. I can't remember if I thought that way. But you can't stay young forever, can you? Like everyone ages. And it makes me wonder if because of Botox fillers, surgeries, plus social media, everyone has this warped view of like what happens to the body and face as you age. Like the difference between being 24 when they first started the show, 34 when they ended, but then even 34 to like 54, whatever it is, that's like a lot of aging goes on in that time and like getting into middle age, like menopause, all that stuff. Um, I think we're a little bit removed from what an aging person looks like these days because of social media and celebrities. Oh yeah. And just like the entire beauty industry and just everything that society teaches you that youth is um, like youth is a tool and like aging is something that is cloaked in shame and that we should prevent, um, mm. even though, you know, of course, aging is such a privilege. Um, yeah, it just really infiltrates every every aspect of our life and I actually think with the teenagers stuff I I don't see this too like my TikTok I'm not on such a weird algorithm it gives me nothing like current affairs or whatever (laughs) which is annoying um well I I don't know I think this might be a bit far-fetched but I do think the fear of aging comes from like the fear of not achieving enough when you're young um and capitalism honestly that's what's perpetuating it and I think it all does add together Yeah, I agree. And this is like very wealthy and beautiful people who Mm -hmm. are aging. I think they looked great. Like, Mm -hmm. obviously they look older, but they're getting into their 50s now. I swear teenagers on TikTok think that as soon as you turn 25, you're literally like dust and bones. Like the amount of people I've seen, so, you know, they're like 28 posting on TikTok, like in a backpack with blue hair and they're like, I'm 28 today or I'm 30 today. And all these comments like, oh my God, you look amazing. And it's like, you don't just turn to like gray hair and like, you know, a hunchback as soon as you're like past 25. Um, so I think it is just a little bit of naivety, but I saw one of my favorite tweets around this was by someone called Declan Lawn, and they say, some people age like life is all about not aging, but Matt mm. LeBlanc has aged like he enjoys himself immensely. And I have to say, I think he wins. He seemed like such a great person watching that reunion was really special um I don't think I've seen him many acting things recently so just seeing him you know grow as a person and talk about what he loves in life he talks about his daughter and he just he seems really happy and of course Mm. again paid two million dollars for this you can put on a happy (laughs) face but he genuinely did seem like he was enjoying life The tweet below it was really nice as well. It said, in my opinion, being youthful doesn't come from having wrinkle-free skin, etc. It comes from a spark, enthusiasm for life. You can have all the Botox and fillers in the world, but without that spark, shrug emoji. I think that's so true. 
I like that, but I also want to kind of push back on the narrative of like, that's youth. Like that's what youthfulness is. Again, we're kind of putting youthfulness on a pedestal, even if it's not related to like aesthetics. I still do. I mean. But they're not saying in that tweet, they're not saying youth is spark. They're saying having enthusiasm for life. Like, uh, yes. Makes you more sparky. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I saw, a, I saw a nice TikTok around this theme about how when you're young, there's a lot of pivotal moments that happen to your life, like your first kiss, your first time riding a bike, your first blah, 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 blah. And it makes life seem so exciting because you're experiencing all these new things. But as we age, we fall into routines of things and our brains almost like unconsciously switch off because there's nothing new stimulating them and they're kind of bored by that. So things feel mundane because it is repetitive. So the guy on the TikTok is like, you know, challenge yourself, just do new things and try new things because that can, I guess, reignite that spark as well, which is mm. a nice way of thinking about it. A couple years ago, um, very cheesy of me, I like, I had this bottle um, and I was like, yeah, this is the year I'm going to like do all these new things. And everything, every time I do something new, no matter how small it was, like trying out a new chip flavor, I'd write it on a little piece of paper, scrunch it up and throw it in the little bottle. And then I had reminders of like, Hey, this year, like it has not been a waste. It doesn't have to be massive things. Um, but it was nice to just kind of rejoice and romanticize in the little things. That's so cute. Also, the most like Pisces. It's <laughs> going to say <laughs> romanticize everything, even the chips. No, that's beautiful. I love that. We should all live more like that. So we've gone off a bit off track here. So more reunion thoughts. Let's sum it up. I think for all of its valid criticism, the reaction to the reunion proves that we're still all looking for that comfort TV show, something that makes you forget about the rest of the world. Because in the Friends world, yeah, they have issues of like, am I going to get fired? Who, Which girlfriend should I choose? Whatever. Um, they don't discuss the outside world that much. They live in these big, beautiful apartments in the middle of the city. Um, they can pay the bills. They spend their weekends hanging out with each other rather than working on their side hustles. And it's a time before social media, before Trump. And even though the Iraq war and 9-11 happened during filming will be with the beginnings of that, they barely even touch on it. And I think it's such a little escape for so many people, like hearing mm from all these people from around the world and how it's impacted them, I thought was really, really moving. People were saying it's like saved their life mm. and they found comfort and joy in the show. And I think at the end of the day, that's what life's all about is having those little moments and pockets of escape from like this crazy world we live in. So obviously I love the reunion. So in a world first, the Federal Court of Australia has found the Environment Minister, Susan Lay, has a duty of care to protect young people from the climate crisis. Eight teenagers and an 86-year-old nun sought for an injunction to prevent Lay approving a proposal to expand the Vickery coal mine in northern New South Wales. While the injunction didn't pass and they didn't stop the expansion of the coal mine, they did find that the environment minister actually has a duty of care to not act in a way that would cause future harm to younger people. So big environmental news. I feel like it's so nice to have a win in the mm. environment news rather than always such negativity and like despair. Yeah, I know. And what a great headline having like eight teenagers and this 86 year old nun spearhead this campaign. I think it really was very heartwarming and very nice to see like intergenerational, um, environmentalism mm. as well. Uh, it was so cool to see this. Honestly, though, if I'm being, um, truthful i don't know too much about policy work and how these things kind of play out i had to google what injunction meant and that just means like to prevent something from happening but what i mean by this is i wonder how is this going to play out like what does this actually mean so the coal mine is still going ahead it's still expanding but now the court has said that yeah the environment minister has a duty of care to protect young people from the climate crisis but that kind i'm scared that that's going to turn into lip service or just something nice mm. that they could have said like oh we're still going ahead with a coal mine but don't worry we'll care for your future well i mean 
also, isn't that what the government's been saying this whole time? Like, the federal government has been like, oh, we care about the future of Australians, but we care about jobs for future Australians, so let's build a coal mine. It's like, mm. well, there won't be any jobs if we're all dead. So, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I'm trying to see the positives and hope that at least makes politicians a bit more scared of, like, the legal system and stuff and know that people can make a difference but we'll have to wait and see I guess yeah oh my god I can't believe we always put a Debbie Downer spin on everything (laughs) on this podcast I mean it's good to be critical but no I think overall as well it's it's very inspiring to see um the young people of Australia lead the way in these sorts of issues Get on your critical thinking hats now because we're moving away from the news and we want to talk about a topic that has come up on our feeds more and more lately that I want to hear everyone's opinion on. So there's this post on Instagram that's been making the rounds of a snippet of a 1983 text that explores how heterosexual male culture is actually homoerotic and man-loving. With over 11,000 likes at the time of recording and many story shares with captions along the lines of, but y'all aren't ready for this conversation yet, it's of course a conversation that we want to have on Culture Club. So this bit of text is taken from The Politics of Reality, Essays in Feminist Theory, and it's written by Marilyn Fry, an American philosopher and radical feminist theorist who's currently alive and 80 years old. So let's read a little bit out now. To say that straight men are heterosexual is only to say that they engage in sex exclusively with the other sex, i.e. women. All or almost all of that which pertains to love, most straight men reserve exclusively for other men, people whom they admire, respect, adore, revere, honour, whom they imitate, idolise and form profound attachments to, whom they are willing to teach and from whom they are willing to learn and whose respect admiration, recognition, honour, reverence and love they desire. Those are overwhelmingly other men. She continues, In their relations with women, what passes for respect is kindness, generosity or paternalism. What passes for honour is removal to the pedestal. From women, they want devotion, service and sex. Heterosexual male culture is homoerotic. It is man-loving. And then obviously this is very cisgendered binary we're talking about here men and women cisgender men and women you brought this topic up to chat about on the pod so i want to hear your thoughts first what made you want to explore this topic more the first time i read it i like quickly skimmed it i was like my brain's not ready to process this at the time of reading put it aside saw it on someone else's story who yeah they both had the captions but y'all aren't ready for this conversation so it caught my eye and I feel like a lot of people are starting to grapple with this. I had never heard these thoughts being put into words before. So it really kind of shocked me reading this. I was like, but it makes sense. But it makes sense. That's that was was my thought process. What about you? Well, you brought it up and I was like, oh, that's a good point. I haven't really thought about that before. And then the algorithm knew and I was on TikTok and I'm on Maniskin TikTok. I was posting about it on our stories the other day. They are the Italian winners of this year's Eurovision competition. In the TikTok, which we'll share, a woman is dancing to a Maniskin song and the caption says, based on the hype around this guy, I'm sure guys bodybuild and buy loud cars only for other men and you cannot convince me otherwise because the lead singer is very um, androgynous, feminine looking, wears makeup, earrings, Harry Styles-esque vibe. So it's funny that that's come up a couple of times recently. I've also seen some TikToks lately where there's a more feminine looking guy wearing makeup again and it's stitched by like a muscle bodybuilding man who's like, I work out every day and have a six pack yet girls go for guys like this, like very confused. And it's like, yeah, because you're looking at yourself through the male gaze and uh, guys, other guys are just, you know, wearing what they want. And We'll get into that. my thoughts on that later. But yeah, so it's funny that this topic has been coming up again and again. What I really liked about it, I think, was unpacking what it even means to be heterosexual or what types of love and adoration um, it's associated with. So I found it so interesting that Marilyn, the writer, broke down that, you know, in her eyes, 
heterosexual love only pertained to the actual physical act of sex here. So she was saying every other aspect that you'd usually find in a relationship, like um, respect and admiration and who you learn from, a lot of straight guys get from other men and not from women. And I mean, that's yes, I know I literally just repeated what she said in the paragraph, but I was really shocked about that and it kind of made me rethink what we want to receive from relationships and what we expect to receive from relationships and whether or not sexuality, you know, what encompasses that. Is it um, who we find sexually attractive? Is it who we find sexually attracted to, who we respect, etc.? I don't know. It was interesting to break down. My brain is still processing it, so that's why my thoughts are coming out as like, word vomit and also this is like a lot of generalizing going on here like yeah but i do find it interesting that this was from 1983 so this is like 40 years old it's not a new concept and the male the theory of the male gaze isn't a new concept either that was actually created in 1975 from a theory um by laura mulvey who proposes that sexual inequality is a controlling social force in the cinematic representations of men and women. So the male gaze is the aesthetic pleasure of the male viewer and is a social construct that comes from patriarchy. And I learned that when I was in uni and ever since then it's so fascinating to watch watch movies and TV shows and just media in general knowing that theory. It reminded me of the fashion festival film that you and I watched at the festival a few months ago where I was like oh this looks cool it was like this mm-hmm. you know short fashion film it was like two women they were going skiing and they had really cute clothes on I was like oh my god this is so cute and then it at one point it switches and this like skinny white woman is eating hot dogs she's got ice cream she's like putting a finger in her mouth like eating the ice cream like very sexually um there's a woman of color next to her who doesn't say a single line the whole time and didn't I say to you, as soon as like that came up on mm. on the screen, I was like, oh, this is a male director. And then lo and mm. behold, it was a male director looking at women and putting them on this pedestal um, of what they think like a woman in a fashion film should be. So that's like a very obvious example. But when I was researching this, the Mulvey's theory was also built upon Sigmund Freud's theory of male castration anxiety. Have you heard of that? No, but... I also learned that he's like a really crappy guy <laughs> as well. Well, not, yeah. Wait, tell me about this one. Well, Freud has a theory that like all sons are in love with them or want to have sex with their mums. That's what he's like most famous for. Um, but in this theory, he says that because the cisgendered woman is lacking in a phallus, her presence invokes unpleasantness in the male. And because of this discomfort, Laura Mulvey then theorized that women are transformed into passive recipients of male objectification in media representation. So like Freud's theory is like, oh, this, this woman doesn't have a penis basically. So then men are afraid of also ending up like that. And so these theories are built upon each other. And then we get to this theory of like the 1983 theory. Oh I don't know if I'm like, am I making sense? No, that, make, that makes sense. That's a lot. That's a lot <laughs> to take in. So I'm wrapping my head around it as we speak. But male gaze is something that we always encounter. Just think of any female trope in a film. So girl next door, you know, that mm. like kind of unassuming but beautiful girl who's non-threatening but appealing innocent. to men, innocent. We've got um, – the manic pixie dream girl who's mm. like quirky and blah blah blah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I can think of one word right now. I knew it was quirky. Um, There's the Madonna Hall complex. You're either your a babe. We talk about it all the whore. time. <laughs> I always put that in writing. I'm like classic. <laughs> so good though. And like, I guess that fashion film that you were talking about. It's that cool hot girl thing like from Mm. gone girl that whole spiel about being like super hot but um liking typically male activities like footy and being able to eat burgers and not care about your body but also look really hot Mm. um just all all that sort of stuff yeah all at the same time going back to the thing of heterosexual male culture is homoerotic because like guys work out for other guys or guys dress a certain way for other guys it did make me think that is this the same as women wearing makeup for themselves, that kind of argument? Or like do men lift for themselves and their own expectations of what a man should be or are they doing it for other men? 
in a sense, again, this is massive generalizations because I don't even have that many like guy friends that do this, but I do think a lot of men do it because they think that's what women want as well. Mm. Don't you? Like, oh, like that, that typical like six pack bro guy. Um, that's kind of the epitome of masculinity. I think men think that's what's attractive. Again, this is through the male gaze. But I also do think it's what you just said and it's like their own expectations of what a man should be. I think they kind of feed into each other. Then it kind of feeds into toxic masculinity. Exactly. And it goes back to the TikTok of that guy being like, but why don't girls like me? And it's like, because you don't talk about anything except the gym and, you know, like that's not what all women and then again generalizing here i was thinking about it and i definitely dress and present myself more for the approval of other women and my friends than men Mm. so Mm. do you think that men should also have the space to do that like when i say oh okay i know that like you and our friend kitsch love pastels um we're hanging out we're going to picnic i'm gonna wear pastels we can get cupids together and like i know that like i'm part of your circle and I, I like belong in your group um you if I said I did that you'd be like oh that's that's fine that makes sense like that like, makes biological mm. sense as like an animal we just want to belong yes. to like a group and a pack but then we're saying that like it's bad that men do it wait I just want to kind of go back on this <laughs> because I very much um unconsciously do this so I'll I realized recently when I'm catching up with someone my outfit will be inspired by them and I'm like oh like that's cute like I'll be thinking about them like I mean I'm pulling looks from what I've seen them previously wear and I like that oh my god I never thought about it like that so I definitely fall into that category um in the sense of you asking the question, okay, like should men have space to do that for themselves? I think yes, but I think what's missing there is that kind of self-awareness to know that they're actually doing it to impress other men. Mm. I think they're not thinking that like we're thinking about it right now. True, because I'm like I know that or like when you get dressed to hang out with someone, you're like I know that it doesn't have to impress them, but like they might Mm. compliment me on my outfit because – they gave me the shirt I'm wearing or mm. I know that they love sunflowers so I'm gonna wear sunflower earrings whereas you think men might like deny that that would be that they would do that and that's like where the toxic masculinity comes into it yeah like do they let themselves like sit in that appreciation that they get from other men like do they allow themselves to not even just accept compliments but just sit in that adoration or feeling accepted or feeling appreciated by other men I don't know how that is reciprocated in male circles, honestly, because mm. I'm not in there. But I wonder about that. Well, I know we do have a couple, like literally maybe a handful of straight cisgendered male listeners. And if you're listening and you have thoughts on this, please, please yeah. jump in our DMs because we'd love to learn more. And I think it's important we have these conversations to like progress our culture anyway and to learn more about each other. Like that's why I've been kind of pushing back on your theories a bit today because I'm like, mm. I do want to understand why we think this way. And rather than like dividing the binary genders and sexes to be like, but why are we thinking this way? And we kind of do all bounce off each other all the time. So yeah, very um, different topic today for Culture Club, but yeah. I've enjoyed it. <laughs> Look at us pulling from like feminist theory and stuff, <laughs> not just TikTok. Sorry, TikTok's not our only reference in our show notes today. <laughs> What have you been reading, watching, listening to, loving, apart from Sour by Olivia Rodrigo in lockdown this week? Don't even mention Sour. We'll go on a massive, (laughs) another massive talk about it. Um, But in a culture club first, I'm recommending photojournalism. How how random is that? So, mystery, we've got photojournalism. We're hybrid now. Everyone. (laughs) Yeah, literally. Anyway, I stumbled across this Ukrainian-born photographer who has been like living in New York for 30 years now through a Guardian article called Amish Girls on Holiday at the Beach, Dina Litovsky's Best Photograph. So again, strange of me to keep recommending this Amish content, but apparently that's what I'm into at the moment. Um, but a little bit of background on Dina. So in her about page, she describes her work as visual sociology. 
we are truly back at uni folks. We are truly going there today. <laughs> but basically, um, that means she explores ideas of leisure, subcultures and social gatherings. On her website, she's got a um, like tab of her personal projects, which I really enjoyed um, going through. So one of them, like I was just mentioning, is called Where the Amish Vacation. Again, it gives us a great look at this little known religion, especially as a vacation. Um, apparently, some typical rules that they usually have where it's like they don't use phones and they don't use cameras. It's a little bit more relaxed when they holiday, at least for this group of Amish people that she follows. There's pics of like the kids on segways in their like ye old clothes and it's just great to look at. I don't know. It's it's so fun and it was such an interesting, interesting example of journalism. Like I really do appreciate photojournalism. Were you looking at the photos or something? I was, yes. Sorry, that's why I wasn't making eye contact with you because they're so beautiful. <laughs> like the colors, they're so, you know, we'll obviously post them on our um, Instagram, but it's so cool, I think, to see. That's what I love about journalism anyway, is like seeing other mm. communities and groups that are so far removed from our reality, like in, you know, the city of Melbourne, Australia. So that's great. I can't wait to share them. They're very like colorful and mm. like I want to have one of them on my wall like they look you just want to like know who they are you know oh that's the thing um I study design as well so I can I really do appreciate like the composition of these photos and just like the perfect timing of each of them I think it was also really well encapsulated with another series of hers called um meatpacking so it just captures the nightlife of the meatpacking district i'll read out a little bit of the like snippet she has describing this series the rules that govern the city during the day are suspended the act of looking concealed in the daytime is brazenly celebrated women navigating the jagged streets and high heels are confident of their presentation but unsteady in their step a barrage of compliments and whistles accompanies them as they make their way through the space Every weekend night, the cobblestone streets of the meatpacking district are transformed into a microcosm of sexual politics. And these photos, click onto them. I think they're so good. I think she really just captures like human interaction super well. And honestly, God, I'm going to say it, but a picture is worth a million words here. I think they (laughs) just tell like such a story. I think also just with COVID and a lot of us actually not going out, it's just filled with nostalgia and also just a lot of emotion there. Like some of the photos aren't easy to look at, like a lot of leery guys and, and things like that. But yeah, she's so good. So that's my recommendation this week. Very different, but cool. Anyway, Jasmine, so what are you going to recommend for us this week? So this week I read, honestly, the best piece of long-form journalism that I can remember. It was so enthralling. It's by an American man named Barrett Swanson for Harper's. Not Harper's Bazaar. This is just called Harper's. And it's the oldest general interest magazine in America. It was first published in 1850 which is crazy. There's also a podcast on the same topic. If you're not into reading, it is very long form. It took me maybe 20 minutes to read. So it's kind of more like a short, well, it's an essay. It's not an article. It's an essay. So in the essay, Barrett spends five days at a TikTok collab house called Clubhouse FTB or Clubhouse for the Boys. Um, I think this is for June's issue. So he must have been there at some point last year. It's a fascinating fly on the wall piece where Barrett analyzes TikTok, influencer culture, and the lack of Gen Z's critical thinking skills. <laughs> Ouch. Oh, just you wait. There's so many great parts and I wish I could read the whole thing, but I'll just read this extract here. After all, these kids were very young when their parents gave them iPhones and tablets. They've never known a self that wasn't subject to anonymous virtual observation. And so it may well be that whatever we mean by authentic here isn't the standard definition that Rousseau and the Romantics first fathomed, a true effusion of your unvarnished personality but is authentic in the sense that their identities have been made in perfect, unconscious sympathy with whatever their mob of online followers has deemed agreeable and inoffensive. Several times throughout my trip, I think I can see the toll this takes on them, a kind of pallid desperation that flickers across their faces. At one point, Brandon comes over and says, 
The scary thing is you never know how long this is going to last. And I think that's what eats a lot of us at night. It's like, what's next? How long can we entertain everyone for? How long before no one cares? And what if your life was worth nothing? Wasn't it precisely this kind of sadness that my lectures on Keats and Toni Morrison were trying so desperately to foreclose? I mention this only to observe that if we sneer and snicker at influencers' desperate quest to win approval from their viewers, it might be because they serve as parodic exaggerations of the ways in which we are all forced to bevel the edges of our personalities and become inoffensive brands. It is a logic that extends from the retailer's smile to the professor's easy A to the politician's capitulation to the co-worker's calculated post to the journalist's virtue-signaling tweet to the influencer's scripted photo. The angle of our pose might be different, but all of us bow unfailingly at the altar of the algorithm. Mind blown. Isn't Are you it kidding me? Amazing. It's I would 100% recommend. Like, I want everyone to read it. It's yeah. so so fascinating. The way that these kids cuz they're like 19, I guess, 19, 20. Mm. Um they've like dropped out of uni and like the way they have just no critical thinking thoughts is so fascinating cuz this journalist spent 5 days with them and they didn't he says in the piece like they didn't know how to react with a journalist they didn't know like what they should say on and off the record or if I was their friend or um what and the last paragraph is insane as well it ends at like I'm an influencer party in Los Angeles as um the bushfires were raging his words are just so so beautiful and it really encapsulates like the craziness of the TikTok hype house world so I wish I could read the whole thing, but um, just go read it, please. So astounded by his writing. Like that was so beautiful. And as we're both writers, I think we can just, it's, I'm, I'm so in awe of it. I, I love it. Mm. I'm so excited to read this piece. There's so many of those phrases just really stuck out. And my God, I'd love to write like that one day. <laughs> I'm trying no, to find right. his age. This is so <laughs> embarrassing, but like literally, I'm googling him to try find how old he is to just quell oh, my. He's young. <laughs> Sorry to tell you. No, <laughs> he's Are a millennial. Um, in the piece, they're like, guess he's like, guess how old I am, and um, the TikTok is like, oh, 24, 25, and he says, oh, what an angel. So he's older than 25, and then the guy, one other guy was like 36. And he calls him a bastard. Right. So I don't know if he's between 25 and 36. That's all I know. <laughs> and he's a millennial. So yeah. beautiful writing. I would. Mm. I want to read more of his work now. Um, mm. It was very inspiring. Imagine getting to spend five days on a project. <laughs> Couldn't be me. Oh, I know, right? <laughs> Couldn't be, be us in digital hour. journalism. <laughs> mm-hmm. I know. But, yes, that does bring us to an end of another Culture Club episode. Thank you so much again for hanging out with us this week. You know what? Like, if you enjoyed this episode, maybe tell a friend about it. That would be super lovely. Sending love to everyone in Victoria. I don't want to say we've got this, but we can do this. <laughs> like Bubble Builder said, we can do this. Can we fix it? Can you do it? <laughs> we did lose. I don't even know what he said, but... Okay, we're spiraling now. Bye. Bye. (laughs) Bye.